0: Welcome to episode 527 with my guest Gabby. Uh, we're using a, a, a pseudonym for her. She's a, a friend of mine, and when we recorded this episode, we used her real name. So uh, you'll you'll hear it getting beeped out a couple of times through the epi- uh, episode. I didn't want you to be shocked. I didn't want you to call nine one one when you when you heard the sound of beeping. Uh let's jump right into it oh no i forgot to tell you who i am or what you're listening to this is the mental illness happy hour and i am jackass Uh, i am not a therapist this is not a doctor's office take everything i say with a grain of salt and then add a little pepper we added two new surveys to the website uh a survey called back in time uh, as those of you who are regular listeners know, a lot of times one of the questions I like to ask people is if you could go back in time to any point in your life and talk to yourself, what would you say? How, you know, at what point would you say it and what would you say to yourself? So we have that new survey. And I don't know why it took me so long to put this other one up, but we finally have a fears survey. I'm not sure if you guys have any fears. I think you all got your shit together, just like me. This is from the back-in-time survey filled out by Nathan. And uh, he writes, I'd go back to when I was seven years old and say, your parents just got divorced. It's okay. I promise they still love you in their weird ways. You don't need to seek love from everyone the rest of your life to replace what you think is missing. Wow. Nathan. Home run right out of the right out of the gate. Thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Rain is Good, and they write, uh, "I love waking up to the sound of rain falling on the balcony and the small breeze that flows in through the crack in the window." I, I especially love that second part. Um, not when it's winter and you're freezing your ass off, but you just get like that little. That little whiff of uh, the fresh air outside. Uh, this is from back in time, filled out by Sheila. I would go back to when I was 18, and I would tell me not to follow that boy to that college, but to try moving abroad. Every decision since 18 has been wrong. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Sheila. Yeah, you know what? Uh, here, let me be the... Uh, Mr. Sunshiny Silver Lining but a lot of times and maybe this is something that um, it took me living on this earth for a long time to realize but a lot of times the quote unquote mistakes uh, I don't know why I put the unquote in before I finished the word I was quoting Uh, the mistakes we make in life or the things that we think are failures a lot of times if we just hang in there, we see that there's something that we learned from it or even a skill that we acquired or an emotional muscle or resilience that helps us later in life. And sometimes it's even in the form of helping somebody who's in the shitstorm that we walk through. Uh, This is from back in time, filled out by John Stultz. Hi, John. I know John. And he would go back to when he was 18 and say, bro, Ashley really wants to fuck you right now. Hello to John, and hello to Ashley, if you're listening. This is an email I got from a guy who wants to be called, I ain't what I want to be, I ain't what I'm going to be, but thank God I ain't what I was. And he writes, about two months ago I started therapy, a lot due to your encouragement to do so, for which I am beyond grateful, even if it took listening to the show almost since the beginning. And so far, it's going well, even if I'm also learning patience and not to force and rush this stuff. Also, thanks to your example. I'm definitely already feeling more stable and so grateful to have that support. My question is really two questions. Can you talk about not trying to rush the healing process, both in therapy and in general? How do you know personally when you clicked with your best therapist? How long did it take you to know for sure? You are at three questions, sir um asking the second one because while I like my therapist I feel like I'm hitting a plateau and these are all such great questions and I wrote them back and I said I think every person hits plateaus in their relationship with their therapist I think if it drags on for months it might be something to look at or certainly bring up with them and actually I think it's great to talk about right now or whenever it comes up because a good therapist will want to know whatever it is that you're thinking or feeling because it gives them more information to help you and as far as rushing healing the only thing that I have ever heard is uh, is that sometimes when there's a history of really intense trauma and you're using a modality like EMDR, the treatment is not supposed to start off with the most intense memories. But again, I'm not a therapist, so I'm sure a therapist would uh, have a longer and more detailed opinion than i have and from my personal experience i've never felt like my healing was being rushed if anything i felt like it was taking forever but every person modality and client therapist relationship has components that are unique so a lot of it is exploration and discoveries that they help you process as you come across them you know one of the signs of a good therapist is that they help you discover things rather than telling you everything and kind of forcing your your path of discovery it's it's more like kind of uh, gentle nudging and and a lot of times, just saying back, reaffirming what it is that you're saying out loud, and uh, it's it's kind of a, a joint discovery and and with mild guidance uh, is is what I've found. And speaking of therapy, one of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com online therapy. That's Better H E L P BetterHelp.com. If you are interested in checking out doing therapy from the comfort of your own home crying in your barca lounger uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing um, you need to be over 18 and they are licensed in all 50 states they have a Huge variety of counselors to choose from. You can change counselors at any time. And uh, I'm a big, big fan of it. So check it out. And then one more thing before we uh, get to the interview with my friend. Uh, This is an awful some moment. And uh, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself who cares. And he writes the first day I ejaculated. I love when something starts off with that sentence. Uh, I went to my father to ask what had happened. He explained it. I now think, quite well and calmly, not an awful experience by any means. However, that night at dinner, (laughs) he said that he had an announcement. Our son, he said, has had his first ejaculation. Those present at the table, him, me, and my mother. My mother said... Oh, Ron, no. I am here with my friend, who I've known for probably about ten years. She is one of my support group brethren. Um, you are somebody that is so important in in my life. Um, I grew up without sisters, but as I tell you and a couple of the other um, women from our support group, you. You are my sisters. You know everything about me. Uh, I know a lot about you. I don't know if you're holding anything <laughs> back, but we are who, uh, we reach out to when, when we're struggling. And it's an amazing feeling. And I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a long time. Um, because I love you and I love talking to you. And <laughs> we yeah. were, We were talking before we started rolling, and what what was some of the stuff that you were saying that you were anxious about?
1: Oh, I hate my voice. (laughs) And what was And uh, that I'm not good enough. I have nothing to say, nothing worthwhile.
0: Ironically, that makes for a perfect guest. (laughs) Those are, those are like the, from the top 10 list of, of issues, but I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you're, you're here. Uh, you're originally from Afghanistan. You were, you were a kid when you uh, emigrated here. What, what was the story be, behind that?
1: Well, I was born in Afghanistan. Um, I lived there during the Russian war, mm, my uh at the beginning of the Russian War, I am the oldest of four girls. My father was a military man mm, who had side businesses, and this was back when before the Taliban, when things were normal there, where women held jobs, drove smoke, went to disco, so it was liberal and we escaped because my um uh, because my father wanted to give us a better life and better education, and also a little side note because that's the kind of person I am. I wanted to get out of classes, and <laughs> and uh, also all my friends getting out of classes and not doing their tests, so I was like, oh, how are they doing it? Well, they had joined the Communist Party in high s- in school, so I did that, but I didn't know that the consequences of that and that they come after your family. So my father and my mother said that was the other reason why we left that, oh, now that they're coming after my kids, you know.
0: And what did coming after them mean? That <laughs> uh, means
1: that when, if you did anything that was against their government, your whole family is wiped there and there are no questions asked. And I did. Your family have, is wiped out? Yeah, like they would. Killed. Like you killed. Yeah. There was, I saw a lot of that there, like my um, mom's cousins were the Mujahideen, which was at the time were the ones that were fighting against the Russians. And- Who the, were who were then communists. Yeah, yeah. And they were, um, they, because one of the cousins were um, the Mujahideen, so they had taken the girls to intergr- in, interrogate and they actually tortured them, like they had. You know, like, really, like, things that you hear, like, as far as torture, putting electricity through their nipples, like, you know, like, those kind of things. And some of them don't come back, and they kill them, and no one can ask any questions. So, um, yeah, so that's why we left, Uh, took us three.
0: Do you have Mm -hmm. any... Uh, how old were you when when you guys left?
1: Uh, I was I was um, I was just turning twelve, so it was at the okay. tail end of my eleventh year. So
0: you were old enough to definitely form some memories that that weren't necessarily childlike in their innocence or simplicity.
1: No, no, definitely not. I remember very vividly everything.
0: In what ways do you think it informed? if at all, who who you are today?
1: Um, I think my resilience, you know, being able to deal with traumatic things, maybe, um, and that way um, um, chaos, <laughs> you know, but then there's also the flip side of that where, You know, you think those things are normal because you grew up with it. Like we grew up with having a bomb next to our house that fell, you know, but didn't go off. You know, you're just like, oh, doesn't everyone live like that? And isn't that normal? So it also kind of formed into like not the things that were big wasn't so big, you know.
0: Describe what family life was like.
1: Um, there, um, my father was very, um, absent physically at the beginning when I was growing up and then towards the end he was more physically available, but he was not, uh, he was a functioning alcoholic, gambaholic. Um, he was not available emotionally, my mother did the best she could to deal with him and with the family um i was four of um i'm the oldest of four girls so the responsibility on the girl the oldest one is you have to be the good one because everybody follows your footsteps and i was not your typical afghan girl who wanted to sew cook become a good wife i was rebellious from a young age in what Ooh. ways? <laughs> well, I would run around with the um the boys from the neighborhood who can climb the highest tree, who can jump from the nearest, you know, rooftop to the next rooftop, you know, always got in trouble. Um Um, I didn't know that I was ADD, DHD. So I thought that was, you know, later on, I found that that's what it is. I was Mm -hmm. just very active. Um, but I also had a lot of responsibilities because I had three younger sisters and also cousins that I would help cook at a young age, take care of and be, um, Quote unquote, be disciplined a lot, which means got hit by the teachers. And by also, if I came home and told my parents that I was hit by the teachers because I got in trouble, you got hit when you came home because, you know, you got in trouble. So the home life was very chaotic and dysfunctional. Um,
0: from, from both your mother and father?
1: Both, yes. Mm-hmm. And. Um, um, and then me trying to find my my place as the oldest one didn't help because I was not what they thought I was going to be. I was not a conformist, and I was always being compared to my cousins, um, uh, older cousins from the other side of the both sides of the family. That they were, they they cooked, they cleaned, they were this, they were that, they were very much um conformist and I was not so I got in trouble and got so-called disciplined a lot
0: you've been a nurse now for how long
1: uh 13 years going on 13 years now
0: and you've been sober from drugs and alcohol for
1: 23 20, 20, years 23 I'll be years. coming up on 24 in July congratulations Thank you. um
0: the the struggles with intimacy and romantic partnerships um where do you feel when when do you first remember those and and that's one of the ways that, that and i know each other is from a support group around intimacy struggles and self care and perfectionism and all these other issues that you know we came to find out are underneath the the alcoholism, that it was really the driver of the of the bus. Uh, I think a lot of people that start going to support groups often find out that one support group will lead them to another one that is their core issue and is often related to childhood trauma or abandonment. Um, where where do you feel like you are at? What would be the best way to talk about <clears throat> your struggles with self-esteem, intimacy? partnership self hatred um where do we, where do we begin <laughs> what are your first memories of how you viewed yourself um in relation to the opposite sex you identify as heterosexual mm-hmm. um what do you remember first thinking about yourself or boys or your relationship to boys
1: uh well, I've always had the low self esteem. I knew I didn't know that I had low self esteem, but because of my attachment style um, that I had, I didn't. Now, as an adult, I know that I didn't have healthy attachment. I think it started when I was about two, and my sister, who's <coughs> two years younger than me, was born, and she got the attention, and she, um, my needs were not met, and I was secondary, and I had this. Um, second sister and the third sister so my needs were always pushed aside so I became this invisible not seen and not heard and I remember I was like 10 and mm, we were living with my grandma and there was this boy across the street and he was he stuttered but I remember the feeling of him noticing me and liking me and leaving me little notes was like the biggest thing like it was I had found my heroine it was for the first time that i felt um seen like i actually was like oh my god i matter someone sees me and i think part of it was like the getting in trouble was even trying to get attention to be seen um, and that was like my my drug of choice. It was like shooting heroin, you know.
0: Describe how it would feel in your mind, in your body. What the what the thoughts would be, what the feelings would would um, be, if, if you can if you can recall.
1: Yeah, it was like I mattered. I was being seen. Someone cared that like I felt so uncared for. I mean, I knew my parents loved me. But it was a different. It was like I felt alive. That's the feeling. So you like would feel your ecstatic, alive, like, like an energy energized. boost. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't sleep. The obsessive thinking about it. Like getting like almost at that age, but like it was such a high where you were just running around like you had a couple of cups of coffee you're like Mm oh yay
0: (laughs) yeah i remember i kept a picture uh in my pocket of my seventh grade girlfriend and when we were on vacation my family and i couldn't call her because you know long distance calls were expensive (laughs) back then i would just pull that picture out and look at it and i would just get high Mm -hmm. i would get high from just imagining being with her
1: yeah it was definitely the best high more, I believe, for me, it was the my courting more than the drugs and alcohol, you know. The drugs and alcohol was to suit it by my drug of choice as the validation, the being seen by the opposite sex, being validated by the opposite sex.
0: And what would you have liked to have heard from the boy of your choice back then?
1: Uh, um... I think as a teenager, oh, I was so pretty, I was matter, but I think as a healthy adult now um, versus my teenager just wanted the validation, wanted to get that hit, it was uh, probably as a healthy adult, it's, that I was just being seen, oh, this is a person who, you know, I rode bikes back then, you know, I was good at climbing, you know, I just wanted to be just another person just like them without having that label of being female or male because I was feeling so invisible. So any attention that I got, doesn't matter how negative it was, it felt so good and I wanted it all the time, you know, even if it had consequences
0: what are some of the ways that you would uh, negatively try to get attention?
1: Um, I think I broke rules as a teenager all the time, passing notes, you know, which was something that was against the rules in Afghanistan. You had to stay a virgin until you got married. You know, Um, I um, lost my virginity when I was 17 when I came to the States. But along the way, in every continent that I lived in, I had, you know, a boy in every continent and country. I had one in Pakistan, one in India, one in Holland. <laughs> uh,
0: what were the ages that you were in each of those different countries, and when did you settle in the States?
1: Um, I came to the States in 1989, um, so most of my teenage life was... Uh, spend in different countries and continents so I lived in India I was in Pakistan for three months I think that's the only place I didn't have a guy (laughs) Mm. and then in India I remember my dad moved and there was this guy who liked me he followed us like you know when we moved to another place and I think my parents knew And again, it was the same thing, fantasizing, romanticizing, listening to Indian songs, because they're such love addict songs to begin with. (laughs) Those Bollywood songs is all about that. And then when I was here, um, when I came here from age 16, um, till I lost my virginity at 17. um,
0: What do you remember about that?
1: Uh, my father had left. I had already been molested by a family member. So my self-esteem couldn't have been any lower. Um, My mom had become more strict with me because again, it was the pressure of being the oldest and being good. Um, And I was going to school, I was going, taking night classes to become a certified nurse's aide, and I was working at a convenience store at the time, or, and um, the boy was my neighbor who lived downstairs, and he was 10 years older than me, so I wasn't looking for a daddy at all, no daddy issues, <laughs> 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 um, and he gave me some wine coolers <laughs> to get me drunk. I don't remember much of the much of it, or that I enjoyed it. All I know is the next day is like this is how it's supposed to be, um, Look, and feeling shame about it.
0: L- looking back, do you feel like there was any element of violation, uh, given yeah. that he's ten years older and he got you drunk?
1: Yeah, I definitely, definitely. I remember even his mother and brother would tell me that I deserve better. <laughs> wow! That says a lot. Yeah, that says a lot.
0: The uh, incident of incident or incidents of of being molested. Do you believe that that uh, informed your sexuality, and or your view of intimacy? And if so, how?
1: Uh, yeah, I think very much so because I felt I was at fault. I felt. 30, I felt guilty. How old were you when it happened? 16. Yeah. Yeah, that was just when my father had left. It was with um, my aunt's husband, uh, ex-husband for her now. And they were engaged, they weren't even married. And I couldn't tell my family because the same aunt had been molested by one of the other aunt's husband and no one believed her and blamed her. So I couldn't tell because I felt the same thing was going to happen to me. And I felt ashamed. I felt guilty.
0: What did you feel guilty about?
1: Because even though I know there was nothing I had done, I felt guilty that whatever, why he chose me, even though he told me, oh, it's because you're so easy to talk to. Uh, you remind me of your aunt. this is her fiance and um very manipulative, you know, and of course, as a sixteen year old who has daddy issues and here's a man who's giving her attention and she thinks it's like fatherly figure attention. I believed him, you know till it happened um I felt guilty that this is the man my aunt was gonna marry, and I couldn't say anything. Um I couldn't tell my mom. I you know the secrecy. The secrecy is what I think a lot of my drinking and using was over, you know. Like I had this dark bad secret and I knew that a lot of my hypersexuality afterwards was after was was because of that.
0: Yeah, that's something that it, it painfully a lot of People who've been victimized sexually don't realize is a a repercussion of that. And they instead think, oh, see, I I really am dirty or loose or whatever horrible word they they want to assign to themselves rather than this is your body and your mind reacting to unwanted sexual uh, contact. Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially if there was physical pleasure involved because... As I've said many times on the podcast, our soul and our body can experience two completely different things at the mm-hmm. same time. And that's one of the things that makes it so confusing. Mm. And I think for boys especially because, you know, uh, getting an erection is such a um, um, visible sign that some part of you wants it, um, that it's – a lot of guys um, will – they they can't wrap their head around how it could have been a violation if if they you know were were aroused and and a lot of women as well i've read so many surveys for the podcast where a, a woman had her first orgasm during sexual abuse i mean how can that not fuck with your head how can that not make the bedroom so complicated for a long time do you feel like um the the bedroom is a complicated place for you still?
1: yeah, I definitely do. That's why I need the support group still, yeah. and that has helped, but definitely, where maybe at some point at from that point, my mind and my heart kind of disconnected from each other um you know, when there's no integration, of course you act in a way that is against, you know, your actual higher good, higher self, and that's can you why. Be, can
0: you be more specific about that?
1: Yeah, so, you know, after that, like, I, my, uh, just giving up my body to get validation without actually honoring my body that I deserve love, I deserve you know, my body's my temple, yes, I, for pleasure, for myself, but also to connect with someone at a love, love level was separated for a lot of the time. So because I was used like that, that's what I felt I deserved. So I let people abuse and take advantage of me in that way because a lot of times I believed that I deserved it and I didn't deserve anything better or more.
0: It's, it's interesting that, that one of the things a lot of us, when we roll into our support group, are um, shocked to find out is the banquet that we think we've been feasting at is actually crumbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's for many of us, it's through our friendships with each other that we begin to realize, oh, that's a banquet. Mm-hmm. That's safety, respect. Being seen. Building trust. Letting go of the shame. Yeah. It's an amazing an amazing feeling when you find your people.
1: And you're one of those people as I cry.
0: And you're one of those people for me.
1: <laughs> I think for me, that's when this should happen. Like the trust to trust man again because men were bad and wrong and not to be trusted. Men always took advantage of me. Your friendship changed that.
0: And you know my history and how hard that is for me to take in, given my history of being one of the guys that was d- disrespectful at the very least towards women and and I think that speaks to the power of support groups and really putting the work into trying to be a different person but it's so hard how much how much of the residual shame and struggles and kind of wiring that you had in adolescence is is still there and how does it come out
1: um i think there is still a lot so recently in my dating life when someone rejects me it automatically or does is not interested and goes to i'm bad and wrong i've done something it must be me um The shame that, like I was, I've lived with it for so much that I was almost addicted to it. Part of the group, what it did for me was to really identify and let go of that shame because it was like addicted to it, where it was so familiar. To live with dignity and to live with um, esteemable acts was so uncomfortable. Um, There is still times because
0: because it was new.
1: Because it was so new and it was such an unfamiliar behavior, you
0: know. And you were starting to say there were times.
1: There was times that, yeah, um, I... um, Like intellectually, I knew that I was not wrong. I deserve better. But there was still... um, I would do the same behaviors. Um, What brought me to the this is the vulnerable part, to the group was that um, even though I was sober from drugs and alcohol, I had an affair, and the affair is what brought me in. And the shame of it was so great, even though it was very short, but the shame of it was so great, you know, that it, I, yeah. He he was married. He was married, yeah.
0: yeah. Was there a part of you... As you look back now and at the addict in yourself and the, the person who wanted intimacy but was also at the same time afraid of it, um, was there something about the fact that he was married and unavailable to some degree that made that, in your warped mind at that time, a safe choice?
1: Yes, um, because I was so afraid of intimacy I was so afraid of intimacy that not just him, but also previously the people I chose subconsciously were people who were emotionally unavailable. Because I had disconnected from myself. I was emotionally unavailable and didn't know even that I was. Isn't that funny? Even though I was so hard looking for a relationship. I want love. I want relationship. But here I was. had no concept what it meant to love myself, to be intimate with myself. How could I be intimate? So, of course, I attract. I still love to chase unavailable men. But I have healed that part of me that knows that I am loving and worthy of love through friendships with people like you, with men like you, and also with friendships with women, with my higher power, with myself, with healing my trauma. Because unavailable is so familiar, even familiar is painful. It's something that I know,
0: and it's it's catnip for mm-hmm. somebody that has you know an intimacy struggle or an mm-hmm. intimacy disorder, and grows up where trust is mm-hmm. is an issue. And talk to the person who m- may not really understand when we talk about uh, somebody being emotionally unavailable. What are some concrete examples of an unemotional uh, partner that you've been with um, or sought?
1: Um, Well, that means someone who has actually are able to, like, let's say intimacy into me, I see, to have not just intellectual um, knowledge of what happened, but emotional capacity for what happened. Like, I knew I had things that were done to me were maybe not good, you know, but the healing part, what made me really emotionally available is to call it what it was abuse. I was abused. I was sexually abused. I was verbally abused to heal that I couldn't become emotionally available because I didn't know that those parts were actually abuse. I, I thought, everyone gets disciplined like that. Doesn't everyone get molested? Well, at least he didn't rape me, you know. My dad didn't come home and, like, beat me, you know. This guy didn't do this. Yes, you know, I've been raped and all that stuff. But it was because I was at the wrong place because I was doing drugs, you know. So to hold space for my pain and for my joy at the same time and to be able to forgive myself and to be able to forgive the people who have done harm to me or hurt me or weren't there for me and to be able to um, open myself up and be vulnerable and trust. I will use a concrete example. (laughs) You know, when I... Um, came to your house. Can I give that example? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, to me, emotional availability is to hold space for another friend who I know was hurting, who was lonely, and who needed company. And to trust and to have that person hold their part and not do anything to make me feel unsafe, to not trigger me and to ask for what they need and to respect each other's boundaries, that to me is intimacy that we have.
0: I was referring to, uh, I guess it would have been about three years ago. It was in that two-year period after my marriage, before I met my girlfriend, Christina. I was really, really lonely and really longed for... Uh, Gentle affection of a, of a female, not necessarily sexually. Um, I just wanted to be comforted. I was so craving comfort. It was hard to ask, but I said, can you come over and let me lay my head (laughs) in your lap? And you said, yeah. (laughs) And you came over (laughs) and I can't remember if you, if you stroked my head or not, but I just remember mm-hmm. it feeling uh, like you talked about. I felt so seen. I felt mm-hmm. like somebody sees my my pain mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I was worried that I was going to make you uncomfortable um, by asking for that. But I think as you and I have found out in recovery is sometimes you have to take chances. Sometimes you have to ask. Mm-hmm. Get in touch with what your needs are and try to find a way that is respectful and has the right tone to to share with another person what it is that you want or what it is that you're feeling and um, i remember feeling so good after after you left that that you trusted me and i was kind of shocked that that's something that Mm -hmm. i wanted because you know years before that I would have been like that is so fucking lame. <laughs> Holy shit, where go get some cocoa and cookies, you fucking weirdo? Well,
1: what was beautiful for me in that moment was also your vulner- your vulnerability. I think that's intimacy itself, you know, that we can ask for our needs and put ourselves out there and have a chance of being rejected, you know, and yet if we let it, if we open it up and let it be out there, something beautiful can come out of it, which it did. Like, that was a turning point for me that, wow, guys can be trusted. Like, guys are not all bad and wrong and that I am worthy of having that safe relationship with another, one another male, you know, because I didn't. I, uh, obviously, as you guys heard, I didn't have that. Um, and hearing you, you know, s- intimacy also that part of hearing the pain and the struggle, but then what is underneath that and how we all really want acceptance to be seen, to be heard and to be loved and comforted know, and comforted, and you know I I say this and I've heard this not my saying that opposite of uh, addiction is not sobriety is connection that's what we had we had a connection and that's a lot of times intimacy if I'm not connected to myself I can't be connected to my higher power I can't be connected to another human being whether it's a friendship or a love relationship mm-hmm. that's intimacy that doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect it doesn't mean that it's always um, smooth. It doesn't right. mean it's without pain or struggle. I struggle with intimacy with my girlfriend still, you know, my friendship, female friendships. But the beauty is the ones that we're building intimacy that we get to see our part and talk about it, yeah. which I didn't have in my family. You know, you got punished with these feelings. There's no such thing. I was considered... You know, I remember my mom saying sometimes, like, you cry too much. I would be like, I was so hurt. I was crying all night. Well, you cry all the time, you know. And I now in the rooms, when I see men crying, like, it heals my heart. Um, Hearing men in the rooms having, talking about affairs and what was really underneath that, it healed me in a way that, you know, I even was able to have compassion for the person that I had an affair with. Like, I know that's their thing, but that there is deeper disconnect and that connection is the intimacy when I'm connected to myself, then I can be connected to everyone else.
0: When you were talking earlier about validating your own pain Mm -hmm. uh, from you know, when you had been abused, when, when you were younger, it, it highlighted to me that truth that if we are to have intimacy with other people, we have to stop minimizing our pain
1: mm-hmm. and have mm-hmm. compassion
0: for ourselves because it is so hard when we are filled with self-hatred to let other people's love in. mm it's like this gigantic wall that, that you 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 are going to call yourself unworthy until you mm-hmm. change the story in your head about about yeah. your past.
1: Yeah. And calling it what it is cuz a lot of my it was rationalization and justification of what it was. I couldn't heal it till I had could bring it out in the light and you know, my my mother never acknowledged my abuse. She never acknowledged my molestation, even to her dying day, you know. I thought she would. But I had to do it on my own and acknowledge it because otherwise I'm always going to be seeking that unavailable. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to move forward and have that vulnerability and that intimacy, as long as I'm not calling it what it is and being honest about it.
0: I was talking with a a female fellow from from our support group on the phone today, and she was talking about how there's this guy who's not really interested in her that she's obsessed with, Mm -hmm. and then this guy who... Is interested in her that bores her, (laughs) and I said to her, "That is the classic Mm -hmm. love addict. Mm -hmm. Is we find someone who's present with us Mm -hmm. boring, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. somebody who is distracted and inconsistent, uh, you you know, which is kind of the hallmark of emotional unavailability. Unavailability. We we find that feels like catnip to us, Mm -hmm. and it's not an intellectual decision." It, 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 our body reacts mm-hmm. differently. How do you navigate that today? Do you, especially if you find yourself maybe starting to date someone who has the, the red flags of being emotionally inconsistent?
1: Well, thank God that there's a sober dating plan (laughs) in our fellowship, because without it, I wouldn't know how to navigate that. And
0: by sober, you mean emotionally sober, not from drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I mean emotionally sober, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, because there's parameters. So, you know, with those parameters, a lot of the times if I have that very charge, that's one of my red flags. And what do you Um, mean
0: when you say charge? Your your body gets kind of adrenaline- Like yeah. you were talking about when you were a kid, can't yeah. can't go that to hit, sleep. Like,
1: ooh, yeah, obsessed. Like that, hit, that high when you're high,
0: fantasizing about mm-hmm. the future with that person. Yep.
1: Yeah. When I can't be present, and then sometimes you know I would go so much the other way. I'm like, I'm not excited at all. <laughs> you know, like how do you navigate from one end to other? And it is it's being very slow at it. You know, um, intentionally slow. Intentionally slow. And if my body has a really severe reaction, there's that's a red flag for me. And one of the things is also if it's a secret, because what I learned for me because of the molestation, that was why the affair and like the guys that I would hide, you know, not bring around and stuff, it's that had a lot to do with it. You know, because of the because of the molestation, so the secrecy was my high. So it has to be someone that I have can be open to everyone about everything. With so that's another way that I gauge my safe person that I can be around. If I'm in any way omitting something about that person, then there is I need to walk away because that's not going to be a safe relationship for me. Um, yeah, just navigating really slow, really slow.
0: Um, even if your your body is telling you yeah, let's go yeah i feel like i'm I'm ready say that it's hard mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard it
1: is very hard and sometimes you know i've gone with that and paid the consequences because you know you get wrapped up in the moment i forget you know i'm an addict you know i go in the, like that thing when they say when you're that it's not in that moment, but it's like all the stuff that happened before that led you there. If I haven't done the things that I need to do to feel connected and grounded, and then I can easily be in that space. and it's very important that I do the self-care parts of it so that I am grounded, so I can recognize those. Otherwise, I would be like, oh, this feels really good. Right. I don't know what's wrong with this. Why right. would not there be something wrong with this? And
0: and, and for <laughs> anybody who's listening who's a little confused, it's not the morality of having sex with, with somebody uh, too soon. Um, it's that for people like us, who have intimacy struggles or mm-hmm. working to heal some part of ourself. The healthy choice is for the sexuality to come out of a foundation of friendship and some type of knowledge of each other rather than it, it starting off on the first foot from, mm-hmm. from it just being a sexual thing yeah. and then finding out who, who it what is it that is. you're fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that was before. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, when, when, uh, Christina and I first started dating, I did not adhere to my dating mm-hmm. plan and I felt mm-hmm. some shame about that. Mm-hmm. But, um, as, as our relationship grew, um, I was certainly happy to, to find out that <laughs> <laughs> the person that I was having sex with, uh, was somebody that I could be friends with and mm-hmm. trust and, and um feel in in partnership with Mm -hmm. we have talked in the in the past um sometimes you'll reach out to me when you're in that place of am i going to be alone forever talk (laughs) about that
1: well uh there's that struggle still Um,
0: Not the struggle of finding somebody, but the struggle with that voice in your head?
1: uh, Both, the finding that one and the voice, you know, because I guess because I, the fact that I'm more intimate with myself now, I'm more grounded, I'm more sober emotionally, it is I, I operate from a different set of standards. Like you said, it's not, I don't get into a relationship and sleep with someone and find out that we're not compatible, you know, I try to... You know, I'm not doing this perfectly. Try to use my dating plan and be, look at all the compatibility, but you know, and I have more self esteem than I did before. So there's that flip side of it. I've come to be more comfortable with myself and my loneliness and my alone time than I did before. So my capacity to hold space for all my so called feelings that I numbed and escaped with another human being or with drugs and alcohol is as bigger now. I still get hurt, I still get rejected, I still struggle with the dating, I still have a hard time. Sometimes I lose hope. Um it's never gonna happen for me. You know, it happens for everyone else, it will never happen for me. And then I have to call people, turn it over Pray, you know, um, and look at other people's experiences and also believe in the universe's timing. You know, if I am not in a partnership, but as long as I'm open to it and I'm putting myself out there, there's an energy or channel that I still have open that there is hope. I haven't lost hope yet. Even on some days, when I want to have some and <laughs> get gaslighted. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do, but um, I don't let that define completely all the time. You know, I may have moments or a few hours of that compared to before where it would take me weeks and days of like, I'm worthless. I can't get out of the couch because I'm so heartbroken that this person rejected me or left me or couldn't continue.
0: Are there times when you look back at your past and you saw yourself solely as a victim that you saw, oh, wow, I also used people? And and if so, how how did that affect your view of yourself or your behavior moving forward?
1: Uh, this is the part I hate to admit, <laughs> but yes, I have used people. Um, for emotional escapism, and that didn't feel good. That didn't feel good. One of my top lines, my bottom lines, which means, you know, something that I adhered not to do, was that if I am using another person to escape, then that is a big red sign that I'm having an emotional relapse. Um...
0: In, in, in a romantic way or platonic that, or both? A, both? Both,
1: yeah, yeah, and yeah, both. Because um, if I can't have healthy, loving relationships platonically, then I have no business pursuing one romantically. That was a big thing that I really learned in the program with the fellows, male and female, you know, here. Um, and I have used people you know, and it doesn't feel good because I've also been on the other side. So I know how it has felt that and hasn't felt good to have used people the same way.
0: You know, it's one of the things that I, that I love about recovery is even when the truth is painful to find out that it still is information that helps us as we move forward, Mm -hmm. because we have more of a, a sense of what the, um, moral landscape is yeah. as as we kind of navigate it. You know, I, I think all of us shudder when we think of who we were and what our ideas were when we first rolled in. You know, we mm-hmm. saw ourselves completely as victims, filled mm-hmm. with self pity. Uh, you know, kind of that phrase of "I'm a piece of shit." The world revolves around <laughs> somehow we can be the most important yep. person in the world, yet the worst person yep. in the, in the world, and unpacking that is so complicated but so so important and so rewarding because mm-hmm. the people that we get to unpack it with mm-hmm. it i don't know what it's like to serve in the armed forces and mm-hmm. go into battle mm-hmm. but i know what it's like to be in the emotional trenches with mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. feel super fucked up and hopeless
1: mm-hmm.
0: and when we poke our heads out of that foxhole, you know, and the shooting has stopped. It's such an amazing feeling yeah. to to step out of it and, and not alone, but with people that had your back and have your back.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um I had a I had um uh, someone that I um I a few dates with recently. <laughs> it reminded me of that. And, you know, I things were going okay. There was a few red flags that I called you about, you know. Um so we had one Zoom date, two face to face and then he called me last night to talk and I thought he was gonna have a talk about a third date and he said, Oh, there's something I wanna talk to you about. It's gonna be very difficult and I feel like I don't um I this is going to be more of a friendship because I feel, well, this person has less time than me, five years, I have 23 years in program, and that I won't feel good enough. You have your life so together, you're so advanced, you're in so many different programs. It's like, wait, what? When did that become a negative thing? When did that a thing? And he proceeded to say how impressed he is with me. I was like, wait, if you're impressed, why are we not dating? And you know what I realized? I, I It really affected me last night. I was crying. I called a fellow. You know, I was like really, first, really heartbroken because, you know, first it was like, oh, I'm a piece of shit. And now I'm like, I've built my life to be a better person and I do good. And like, obviously someone recognized that, but because of their own insecurities, because of their own thing, they couldn't be around it. And I was reminded by a fellow how many times did I have people who were good and I sabotaged those relationships mm-hmm. because I didn't feel good enough. So today I feel like, wow, that was so honest of him to do it on the second date. Thank God he didn't lead me along. And, um,
0: and sabotage it after you were... Hurt. After
1: I was, we were dating for a while and what a gift. This was a gift. So for me, that's that's the little things that come up you know like wow yeah i get to see it differently i don't get to be and be a victim for maybe an hour last night when i was talking to my friend and you know but look at it from a different perspective like oh this is a gift
0: anything else you want to share before we wrap up
1: I'm just very grateful I'm grateful despite all the all the trials and tri- that I have gone through that has made me the person I am and all my failures and I can be of service to someone else now and share that experiences and vulnerability and maybe give them some hope.
0: yeah, and sometimes I- the best common ground is a little stinky
1: mm hmm <laughs> I love you. I love you, Paul. Thank you.
0: So glad we finally made that happen, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Let's dive into some surveys. Oh, uh, I love how I always announce the surveys, and then I realize that I forgot something that I want to say before we get to the surveys. If you uh, have not yet subscribed to this podcast, it's a great non-financial way that you can help out the podcast. Uh, It increases our download numbers, and that helps with advertising revenue and, uh, and my ego, let's be honest uh you can help the podcast financially by going to our website metalpod.com and you can make a one-time donation through PayPal or you can become a recurring monthly donor through Patreon and you occasionally get uh, little gifts here here and there um but it's it's greatly appreciated and you can also go to iTunes and uh, write a nice review give us a good rating that helps as well and uh spread the word about the podcast post on social media tell your friends about it wear one of those sandwich signs uh on a corner you know flip flip that sign like like they are want to do the spinning sign maybe that's just an la thing anyway this is from the love survey filled out by lazarus And they write, I love sitting, listening to a record, baffled by how they work and how a physical object can convey such deep feelings. That's a great one. Thank you for that. This is from the Back in Time survey, filled out by an old buddy of mine, Catherine Shazar. Catherine used to work at uh, one of the comedy clubs that I worked at, and uh, she worked in the box office. And when I would be hanging out, waiting to go on, uh, she and I just had some great, great conversations and uh, such a great sense of humor and such a great laugher. I I think I enjoyed those times probably more than uh, I did on stage. And uh her back in time, she writes, I was eight, and my two friends who were older asked me if I knew what sex was. I, of course, didn't, but pretended I did to impress my friends. For some reason, it seemed important to know what it meant. They told me, laughing at the time, to go ask my mother. I did, and she told me to go ask my father. That started off a pattern of sexual abuse by my father for the next five years of my life. So I would say don't trust dad. He's damaged beyond repair. That That is not new information to me. Uh, Catherine is a very, very open uh, person, and we had some great heartfelt conversations uh, back in the day, and I hope she's doing well. I haven't talked to her in a while. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Espresso Depresso. I think she's filled out some surveys before that name sounds familiar. Uh, she writes, during my stay in a crisis clinic for drug-induced psychosis, I ended up in a tiny room. The room had no windows. There was a heavy door with no way out. I was locked in a room with just a tiny mattress. The mattress was the one they used during gymnastics. Awfully anxious and absolutely gone from reality. There were two guards and the psychiatrist checking on me every now and then. I noticed they were not wearing masks. I was gone from reality to the point of a crisis clinic and being a risk, yet I still knew to yell in a panic to please wear a mask, you're being a risk to others. After that, got back, uh, and after that, got back to doing weird dances and games, even during me being a danger to others and myself in a crisis center I knew to wear a mask that makes the situation weirdly nice (laughs) thank you for that I hope you're doing better and I hope they're wearing their fucking masks this is from the racism survey uh, filled out by Elva Uh, she's 18 Uh, she's mixed race she uh, specifies as mixed black and white And uh, her experiences with racism, Uh, she writes, "Uh, I was 15 and went into a drugstore during winter with a, quote, too big jacket, unquote. And within 10 seconds of my entering, the sole employee was by my side asking if I needed help. When I declined, she went beside me about two meters and started ruffling things around with no visible goal. She kept giving me glances and politely smiling. When people asked for her, she said she'd be right there and and continued to monitor me while pointlessly ruffling around. I couldn't stand the pressure with my existing anxiety and pretended I had found what I needed. I bought whatever the thing was in my hand, and when I got home, asked my mom to get the thing I needed on her way home. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? I felt tired and scared. I thought the world was past this. I thought I could feel secure going into a store without needing to zip my pockets, making sure the employees have seen me when I walk in with both my hands out of my pockets, no hat or hood, and a bright smile. Nothing more, nothing less, just as I was taught. I just want to shop now, put on a show, and prove my innocence every time. Thank you for sharing that 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 has to be so tiring and anxiety inducing uh just knowing every time there are people out there who just look at you that way this is from the back in time survey filled out by misty and she writes um i would tell myself find someone to love living through a pandemic in your 40s alone will be devastating if you need to do it alone yeah thank you for for sharing that and i'm sorry you're you're feeling alone i hope there's a light at the end of the tunnel here this is an awful awesome moment uh Filled up by a woman who calls herself I've heard people crying after sex why not before (sighs) she writes this one starts dark but sometimes I just have to laugh at my trauma I was molested by my mother and I have complex PTSD as a result last night my partner and I were getting intimate she began to sing a song that my mom used to sing throwing me into a flashback Where's the awesome part of this awfulsome moment, you might ask? She had broken to song immediately after pumping two large squirts of lube into both palms. So when she realized what was happening, she had to try to comfort me with her hands, carefully held in upright cup shapes to avoid dripping lube all over me, and not in a good way. Oh my God. Thank you for that. Oh. Oh. Oh, I love and hate uh, a good awfulsome moment, but you know there's nothing like being able to look back and find something humorous in an awful thing. Hence the name awfulsome. This is from the back in time survey filled out by uh, Sarah Harris. And then in parentheses, uh, <laughs> I didn't have. I don't have the time to say parentheses. I've got to call it parens. Oh, my God, I hate myself so much right now. In parentheses, she put fake name. And she writes, I was in college and was studying theater. My parents had never seen me in a middle uh, middle school, high school, or college production until my junior year. I was playing at Northwestern University Summer Rep Theater. And for some reason, by the way, uh, Northwestern University has an amazing theater program, very, very highly regarded. Uh, And for some reason, my mother came to see me in the play, Hot L, Baltimore. After the play was over, my mother came backstage and said to me, I read an article in Time magazine that the most promising jobs in the future will be in computer programming. This was in 1981. I was crushed. She made no mention of my performance. The next day, the head of casting for ABC Soaps, who had seen the show the same night, called me into a meeting and asked me to come see her in New York City after I graduated. She thought I'd be perfect for one of her soaps. She said the same to another woman I was acting with as well. I never went. The other woman did and became a huge soap star and went on to star in major hit TV series and even get nominated for an Oscar. If I could go back in time, I would say to myself, fuck your mother. Fuck your parents. They never saw you for who you were, only for what you could do for them. And your mother certainly didn't see the talent you had on that stage. Take a chance. Go to New York and audition for the casting director. It doesn't mean you'll get the role, or even if you do, that you'll enjoy it. Just say yes to everything, because at the end of the day, it's the courage to have as many adventures as you can. That will give your life joy and meaning. Wow, thank you for that. And it makes me think how grateful I am to my parents uh, when I changed my major uh, my junior year from uh, what was that I, I think it, it was a science and I was I was pre med I I think it was uh, chemistry or biology but I changed it to theater and uh, my parents had always told me as a as a kid do what you love and. The passion will be there, and there's a good chance that you will be able to make a living from it. They said, do whatever you want, except don't go into advertising. (laughs) They had a friend who was in advertising and would tell them stories, and he was just miserable. And I have to say, it was all great advice. And my parents were supportive when I called and said that I wanted to change my major to theater because I had taken an acting class and really kind of fell in love with it. And uh, I'm I'm really grateful that they, they were... Supportive, My dad kept telling me, probably for the first five years of me uh, after I graduated and was also trying my hand at stand-up, he, he would say, you know, if you ever want to go to medical school, I'll pay for it. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by David, and he writes, applying for law school, I would tell myself that it is a huge debt with little, little opportunity to work off idealists get crushed as a student i would tell myself that law is not a search for truth or justice it's a chess match it's about gamesmanship and who wins thank you david that that is sobering and uh definitely rings true when i see lawyers representing you know for instance when i saw alan dershowitz defending uh trump during the first impeachment trial and saying that it couldn't be treasonous because he's the president and he's acting in the best interest of him getting reelected, which is in the interest of the country i just thought man i am glad i am not a lawyer because you know he teaches law school at harvard so you got to think that he is has some respect within the law community, but I'm not sure how much he he has left. He has definitely seemed to have gone off the rails the last couple of years. Anyway, I digress. Let's get back to the surveys. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself this Mustang barely has floorboards. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and he writes, my bank keeps sending emails about investing for retirement. I'm 55 with 72 dollars of life savings and 33k in credit card debt the only way i'm going to be in a position to retire is to meet a widow worth 3.2 million dollars well i'm sorry that you are are struggling uh financially and sadly i know there's a lot of people um friends of mine who are in the same position um And $3.2 million is a very specific amount that you are looking for. So I'm going to suggest uh, you look in the obituaries. Uh, You're going to have to get (laughs) a time machine and go back to when people read newspapers. And you're going to have to find one where it says that uh, somebody died and left behind $3.2 million and a widow Who enjoys long walks on the beach, sunsets, and dudes with 33K of debt. And I think if you keep doing it, you will eventually find someone. You'll be 217 years old, but you will have solved your problem. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by Fred, and he writes The reason I would tell myself the reason mom hates you having a girlfriend is emotional incest. Run from mom as fast and as far as you can to save yourself years of self hatred and depression. Your girlfriend isn't the problem. Hold on to her. Thank you for that, Fred. And I kind of relate to that one. Remember. Having a girlfriend in middle school my one of my first girlfriends and and my mom, when I said that I liked her or I was going out with her, my mom said essentially said that she was ugly, and I just remember kind of being shocked by it and you know as I look back now, I can see you know, the emotional incest and and even the covert physical incest that I experienced by her. A lot of this stuff in hindsight makes sense, and I think my mom is and was just such an unconscious, wounded person. I don't hate her for what she did and the way she was. I hate the things, things that she did, but, um, man, w- wounded people do really fucked up shit. This is from the back-in-time survey filled out by a woman who calls herself the hyper-vigilante. And she writes, I would tell myself the way you relate to the world is not wrong. Being different makes you a magnet for bullies and heartache now, but ADHD will become your superpower as an adult. It's a gift you will open at 30. Take heart and know you are strong. That is so awesome. Oh, high fucking five. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself lifelong guilt. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I've had men come inside me when we agreed before having sex that they'd pull out first. Each time it felt like a betrayal and a violation. And each time I had to use emergency contraception the next day, which is expensive and can really fuck with your hormones. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My dad had bipolar disorder, but he went undiagnosed for decades. As a result, he was unmedicated and unpredictable when I was growing up. He screamed at me constantly, sometimes for no reason at all. I was always walking on eggshells around him because the smallest thing could set him into a rage that could last for hours or even days. He also coached my softball team, and when he and I would practice alone, he would sometimes pitch the ball directly at my body so fast and so hard that I wouldn't be able to get out of the way fast enough, and it would hit me. Any positive experiences? Absolutely. My dad is now medicated, and he is a completely different man. We talk on the phone every Saturday. I can honestly say that I love him and forgive him for how he was when I was growing up. That is so, I'm so sorry you had to experience all those things, but that is so awesome that he has changed and you now have a relationship with him. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I think about badly harming myself because I have so much guilt and shame about some of the things I did when I was a kid darkest secrets. Like my dad, I also have bipolar disorder, and I'm pretty sure mine manifested at a very young age. One of the symptoms of child onset bipolar disorder I recently learned is precocious sexuality. I was obsessed with genitalia, and I used to initiate sexual exploration with other kids. Some of them were my age, but some of them were a couple of years younger, and not all of them were comfortable with it. I never forced any of the other kids into anything, but I know I made some of them feel uncomfortable and confused. None of the exploration ever progressed beyond the touching of genitalia, but I still feel absolutely horrible about it. I worry that I've scarred some of those kids for life and I hate myself for it. I try to tell myself that I was just a nine-year-old kid and that it was likely my mental illness that played a huge role in my behavior, but I will always feel terrible for what I've done and I will live with that guilt until the day I die. Wow, that is, that is heavy, the feelings that you have towards yourself. And I would just repeat what you said. You were just a nine-year-old kid. And, um, and you're not that person today. And I think it's time to, to forgive yourself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. When I masturbate, I imagine myself as a man having sex doggy style with a woman. Sharing this doesn't really bother me. I know sexual fantasies are really weird for a lot of people. What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to apologize to any of those kids I may have harmed. I would want them to know that if I could, I would take it all back in an instant and that I don't expect them to forgive me, but that I am so, so, so sorry. I'd also want them to know that none of it was their fault in case they might be worried that it was and that they didn't bring any of it on themselves. You sound like such a compassionate, sensitive person. It just breaks my heart to, to think that every day you are, you are hating yourself for something that you did as a, an innocent, struggling child. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I could someday forgive myself for what I did when I was a kid. I have a wonderful therapist that I've been too nervous and ashamed to tell about uh, it, but I know I need to. I just have to work up the courage first. What about writing something out and then reading it to your therapist? That might be a, a way to overcome the fear. Have you shared these things with others? My parents know about it, but no one else does. They have tried to tell me that kids do dumb things because they don't know any better and that I have to stop beating myself up. How do you feel after writing these things down? Anxious and ashamed, but also a little lighter emotionally. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? For those of you that still hold on to guilt for things you did as a kid, you're not alone. I'll work towards trying to forgive myself and I hope you will too. Any comments to make the podcast better? I love your podcast, Paul. I look forward to it every week. It makes Friday an even more awesome day than it already is. Uh, and this survey is from actually from a couple of years ago. I'm way behind on the Shame and secrets survey because I I can't read too many uh, at once and oh, like over 10,000 people have taken this survey and I am... Currently, I think still in like 2018. Um, A couple weeks ago, when you played that ridiculously sad music from this pistachio butter company, I nearly peed my pants from laughing so hard. Uh, And I was at work listening on my headphones too, which made it, it even better because my co-workers were totally confused as to why I was suddenly cracking up for no apparent reason. Uh, so if you could slip in more gems like that I would be all about it keep it up you're a mental health ambassador of the highest order and I love you for it um, yeah the the thing that she was referring to um, was it was the when you're on hold you know a lot of times companies will play music and this company that I order pistachio butter from um, had this hold music that was so fucking depressing but uh I still love their products. they're awesome. The last order that I that I got was just so it was so beautifully wrapped and there was Styrofoam peanuts in it and I knew that it would be safe no matter no matter what the mailman did to it. it's so good. It's so creamy. I love my pistachio brother. I have to order more. (laughs) They have been struggling financially lately. And I think it's because all of their customers are killing themselves. I seriously hope that they do not go out of business, though, because they're, in all seriousness, their pistachio butter is fucking amazing. It's expensive, but it is fucking amazing. And uh, finally, I want to read uh, a bunch of loves filled out by somebody who calls themselves lover of a sweet potato, and they write, <laughs> Releasing a nice big fart during exercise after days of being bloated. Getting my hands and occasionally face covered in paint while being deeply focused on something I'm painting. Finding patches of the aforementioned paint in weird places on my body the next day because I've missed them while washing up. That amazing muscle ache you get after a long, exhausting day and the way it makes you want to stretch like a cat when you are finally getting into bed. Fleece blankets. Oh, yeah. And, uh, those, uh, I guess they're fleets, no flannel, flannel sheets in the winter are just amazing to get into. You're just instantly warm. Uh, The way our dog never lets us kiss without his tongue getting involved too. (laughs) That paints a pretty hilarious picture. Waking up to a ray of sunshine grazing my skin and then sunbathing it in it until it moves away from my face. The soft feel of typing on a laptop making a baby laugh making a baby cry no, just kidding making art out of random things I find at home it both feels good to be creative with such little to work with and to clear things up that were otherwise just taking up space the moment when the fucking popcorn piece finally gets unstuck from under my tongue mmm, popcorn a cat headbutting me And sweet potatoes, of course. Those were awesome. Thank you for that. Well, as I usually say every week, I hope I'm not a broken record. And if I am, you can go fuck yourself. And I don't mean later in the day. I mean right now. I mean drop whatever you're doing. I don't care if you're holding a hot casserole dish You hold that up in the air and you drop it directly on the kitchen floor, shattering all your hard work and the dish that cost a lot of money, and you go right to the bedroom and you fuck yourself. I don't care which hole you put it in. I don't care how hard you do it. I just want you to know that you are being punished by fucking yourself. And maybe some of you, maybe I cast you to hell. Not to the bowels of hell, because you've already fucked yourself. Maybe to the mezzanine. Does hell have a mezzanine? You know all the seats are blocked. There's a pole blocking your view in the mezzanine of hell. I don't know what the show would be that you're missing. Something good. And then there's a couple of seats in... uh, (laughs) One of the arenas in hell where the show is bad and you have an absolutely clear view of it. Wow, this has gone off the rails. I hope that you heard something that inspired you, entertained you, helped you. And uh, I hope that if you're struggling out there that you know that you're not alone. And um, there's a community of us and it's just about finding finding your family because for a lot of us it's not necessarily who who you're born into but uh, that seemed like an awkward phrase what family you're born into but who you who you let in and uh, never forget that you're not alone and thanks for listening